Thank you, guys. And it's great to have Sherry here with us today and the next couple Sundays, right? You're going to stick around? All right. Well, we're glad to have you. Yeah. It's not just her voice, but it's her heart for the Lord uh, that impresses so much. And so we're thankful and glad to have you with us. Um, today we continue in our series on the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 4 and 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there, Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're looking at the story of Deborah today. Um, and the topic that I want to cover is the power of God, the power of God. And so uh, let's talk just a little bit briefly here to get us going here about what does it mean when we're talking about the power of God. Well, for something to be all-powerful, and God says that he is all-powerful, theologians have used the term omnipotence to refer to this. It comes from a combination of two Latin terms, the word omni, meaning all, and the word potent, meaning powerful. So God is all-powerful. What exactly does it mean for God to be all-powerful? It means that God is unlimited in his power. It means that God is unlimited in his strength. It means, as the Bible says, that God is almighty. Uh, to be all-powerful means that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, and for whatever reason God wants. Now, in the Bible, God declares that he and he alone in the entire universe and the entire eternity of things, that he possesses this quality. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1 says, God tells Abraham, I am God Almighty. God says this attribute is something that I have. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 27, God says to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And after getting a crash course in the power of God, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians says in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, he says, God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back God's hand or say to him, what have you done? And when Mary was reacting with shock at the announcement that she would, be the, the, uh, that she would experience the virgin birth, uh, the angel Gabriel who was announcing this to her was unfazed, and he said to her simply, Luke chapter 1 and verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. And then from Jesus' own mouth he said, Luke chapter 18 and verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now what we want to do today is turn to the book of Judges chapters 4 and 5 and see if we can find the power of God on display. And so that's what we're after here today. So if you have your Bibles, flip over there. We're going to read Judges chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. As is our custom here each week, I'm going to ask that you stand. Again, we stand both out of respect for God's word, but also to hit the reset button on all the stuff that we heard this past week that maybe didn't jive with or isn't fully representative of God's perspective of ourselves, of our lives, of how we inherit eternal life, all those sorts of things. And we, so we stand to recognize that this is where truth comes from. You'll also note on the front of your bulletin says that I'm going to talk about a tale of two women today. And it's not the verses that we're getting ready to read. Well, I'm going to save that for another week. Uh, we're going to get into that treatment of, of, of that, those things in another week. But today we're going to talk about the power of God. Let's read here Judges chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and see the power of God on display. Here we go, verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Verse 16. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, 
all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Well, let me give you just a little bit of background. What's going on up to this passage that we just read here? Um, as you have probably picked up in the last couple of weeks that we've been traveling through Judges, there's a pattern that exists from story to story to story in the book of Judges. What happens is the people of Israel are living in peace, and then they do what the Bible says. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They fall into sin, and they really begin to pursue sin. They want sin more than they want God, and they pursue this sin. And so God allows for a foreign power to, be, to rise up and to persecute or oppress his people. And so in this particular story, the oppressor is Jabin, who is the king of the Canaanites, who rules out of a town called Hazor. We have a map here, and we're going to show you a map. Hazor is north-northwest of the Sea of Galilee. If you can pick out where the Sea of Galilee is up there on our map, think north-northwest, and you'll find you'll run into the city of Hazor. I don't know if it's on that. Yep, there it is. It is up there. It's by the, uh, the waters of Merom, just that little blob of water north of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so, uh, so on this particular occasion, the Israelites have, have, um, have been in sin, and, this, and the cycle has begun again. The pressure has come. Um, and so uh, the commander of Jabin's army is a guy named Sisera. We read through his na name there just a minute ago. And Sisera commanded an army with 900, and the Bible makes, it says this, repeats this several times, 900 iron chariots in our little uh, Sunday school group our senior high guys that I'm teaching this morning we talked about what does it mean like they had little iron implements on their chariot or did they actually have an iron chariot well some people disagree some people have different opinion on this but the point is that these guys were well armed they were ready to go into battle and so the Bible makes this point that they had 900 such chariots at their disposal now you can imagine 900 chariots standing side by side each of them is going to occupy about five yards you line these chariots up across the length of a football field somebody does the math right you only get 20 on a football field lined up side by side with the big horse in front and the big iron chariot beside and then you're going to go probably several deep chariots several hundred yards wide 900 iron chariots rolling uh, your way so these were kind of like the, the tanks of their day, if you would. And there were, again, how many of them? 900. Okay, look at verse 4 with me. Help is on the way. Deborah, who is a prophetess, the wife of Lep Lapidus or something like that, was leading Israel at that time. Look at verse 6. She went to Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. Now, Deborah is a representative of God at this time. She's giving judgment to uh, the people of Israel will come and they'll seek her counsel and she's giving God's truth, she's giving God's word to them. And so she needs a, some, but she's not a warrior. Uh, some depictions of Deborah have been that she's this great warrior. She's actually an older lady at this point in her life. Um, she was not somebody who was going to go out in the battlefield and lead the troops. And so she needs someone to do that. And so she summons a guy named Barak. And Barak is a priest. You say, Gordon, how do you know that he's a priest? Well, did you see in verse 6 where it says that he's from? He's from a town called Kadesh. Kadesh is up north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was the word Kadesh means sanctuary. This city was a sanctuary city. There was only three such cities in Israel, the entire nation of Israel, at this time. Kadesh was a sanctuary city in the northern regions of Israel. The, the sanctuary cities were occupied by people who were part of the tribe of Levi. They didn't get land like Naphtali did, like Zebulun did, like Ephraim did, like Gad did, like Dan did, and all, those, all the others did. They got these sanctuary cities. And so the people who occupied the sanctuary cities, and Kadesh is one of them, 
were Levites. They were priests. Barak is from the town of Kadesh. Barak is the priest. You say, Gordon, I thought you said she needed a warrior. Well, hey, I mean, you know, right? You're like, no offense or anything, but I mean, a preacher, you know, chaplain, next last time I saw them going out to battle, that yesterday wasn't the person that you were looking for. Yes, that's absolutely right, which is why the power of God is required in this situation. Um, <clears throat> Deborah summons a priest to lead the fellows into battle. Uh, Deborah, so Deborah tells Barak that God wants him to lead the troops. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, here's his response. He says, look, if you'll go with me, Deborah, older lady, I will go too. But if you won't go, I'm not going either. And so Deborah's response to him, I didn't ask the guys to put up on the screen, but her response to him in verse 9 is, hey, look, because of your response, which showed some doubt, which showed some self-doubt, which showed whether or not you weren't really sure this is something you wanted to do, because of that, we're going to end up giving Sisera, the commander of the armies, over into the hands of a woman. And I'll get to that part of the story here in a little bit. Um, and so really, this is like a self-doubt moment. This is kind of like when God told Moses to go to Israel or to go to Egypt and to stand before Pharaoh and to tell him he's going to have to let all the slaves, the four million Israelite slaves, out of Egypt, his workforce. Um, and Moses says, well, hold on here. Don't you know how powerful Pharaoh is? I know how, how powerful Pharaoh is. I'm not sure I want to go do this. What would I even say? This is one of those kind of moments of self-doubt where Gideon is told by God to go and lead the armies of God against the Amalekites or the Philistines or whoever it was. We'll find out next week. And so he says, hey, God, look, if you want me to go lead these armies, then I'm going to throw a skin of ram out. And in the morning, I want that ram skin to be completely soaked, but I want all the ground around it to be dry because, God, I'm just not really sure that this is really something that I ought to do. And so this is one of these moments for Barak. He says, look, if you'll go, Deborah, which he doesn't expect the elderly lady to go. He says, if you'll go, sure, I'll go, okay. But if you're not going, then I'm not going to go either. So I think that's kind of a way out. Um, so... Uh, Look at Judges chapter 5 and verse 8. Here's one of the reasons why Barak did not want to go. Deborah, she, she says here that not a shield or a spear was seen among the Israelites. So basically, in this northern territory, Jabin, who was the king of the Canaanites, who ruled out of the town of Hazor, who had Sisera as his commander of his armies with his 900 chariots plus all of his fighting men, um, where's I going with that? Anyhow, they had come down into Israel and they had taken all the spears and they had taken all the shields. They had basically stripped Israel of their ability to fight back against this um, foreign power. And so, yeah, that's why he didn't want to go and fight against these guys. I mean, basically, Barak's going. He's going to go get 10,000 men. You say 10,000 men, that's a lot of guys. But when you think about 10,000 men with the other across the battlefield, being several football fields worth of these iron chariots with the big horses in front, three and four deep, plus all the men on the ground, which were probably about 10,000 or more that he had under his command, sister had under his command, getting ready to go to battle against that, you think, and all they got is wooden pitchforks? I mean, this doesn't look real good. This doesn't look like it's going to go real well. Have you ever noticed that when God does something, he does it in such a way that man can't take the credit for it? Barak is instructed by Deborah to go up onto Mount Tabor. Uh, we got some pictures for you here, Mount Tabor. He's, uh, Brian's just going to scroll through them on the screen. And you can see this thing's about 2,000 feet above sea level. It looks like uh, Stone Mountain. And they go up with their 10,000 men, Barak, 
Deborah, the 10,000 men, up on top of this massive mountain. And one of the little pictures you see there is a trail leading up to what's on top of there. And there's a church on top of there, and it's called the Church of the Transfiguration. Archaeologists and biblical scholars both agree that this is the site where Jesus, back in the, later in the New Testament, was transfigured, where Moses dropped out of the sky, where Elijah dropped out of the sky, and he's standing there and he's having a conversation with these guys, and he pulls back his skin, and, everybody, and, and Peter, James, and John, who are gathered there, see his, uh, see his glory, Jesus' glory is unveiled. So they believe kind of this is the same place where that had taken place. But you can kind of get an idea of how high uh, these guys were. And you say, well, Gordon, that looks like a good place to fight a battle from. Right? Because you're up on top, right? Well, you, you always want to occupy the high ground, right? And so you're coming downhill to the enemy. Well, what's wrong with this scenario? No way to escape. You're trapped. Uh, Sisera is going to encircle this mountain, and anybody who tries to get down from there is going to get blasted. And so it's a paint-yourself-into-a-corner kind of scenario uh, that God is encouraging and instructing the Israelites to get them into that kind of situation. Look at verse 12. Uh, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor in revolt, verse 13, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots. The Bible keeps reminding us of how powerful this guy was, plus all the men with him from Harasheth Hagoyim. This Harasheth Hagoyim was a fort that Sisera lived at, and he had men under his command. He had a man in the chariot driving the chariot. He had a man in the chariot shooting arrows at you. He had a man in the chariot with a spear ready to throw at you. He had guys on foot behind the chariots that were going to come behind and take you out. So this is a very powerful force that they're going up against. And it says that they went to the Kishon River. Now, I got some pictures for you of the Kishon River nearby Mount Tabor. Okay? Mount Tabor, at the base of it, runs the Kishon River. The Kishon River's headwaters are very nearby Mount Tabor. It's a very small river. Uh, it's about the size of the Appalachian River down here. Not a lot of water running through this thing, okay? As it moves on further toward the Mediterranean coast, as it gets near Mount Carmel, it widens out, gets a lot bigger. But there near Mount Tabor, near the headwaters of this river, it's a very small body of water. That'll be important, important in a little bit. Just keep in mind, it's itty-bitty, okay? Verse 14. Are we all doing okay this morning? I haven't heard anything from you. So anyway, verse 14. Here's what we read earlier. Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Remember, we're looking for the power of God on display in this story. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? She's asking the question, which is stating the obvious point. Apparently, Barak is up on top of this mountain with his 10,000 troops. Deborah's up there with him, and she's goading the guy to go down the mountain and fight this battle. Can't you see what's already taking place? That the Lord has gone out ahead of you. Now, it's interesting because there's not a lot of details about the battle itself given to us in chapter 4. Chapter 4 just reports to us, they went up on the mountain, there's 900 chariots, and then, then they won. That's kind of how it reports. But when you get to chapter 5, which is the song of Deborah, you get some more details about what took place in the battle. So let's skip to some of those details. Um, oh, no, first of all, I've got to go to verse 15. I'm sorry. Um, at Barak's advance, the Lord, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and his army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. That's suicide. 
why would a general who is losing jump off the fastest mechanism he has to get out of town? Why would he do something like that? Well, again, the Song of Deborah is going to enlighten us here. So skip over to Judges chapter 5 and verse 4. Judges chapter 5 and verse 4. And Deborah's singing here about, she writes a song along with Barak, about the events of the day. Events leading up to it, the battle itself, and then how things wrapped up. And so she said, it's kind of a memorial song, if you would. Kind of like a star-spangled band. All right, a way to memorialize what happened here. Verse 4, O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you, O Lord, marched from the land of Edom. Take a look at our map one more time here of Israel. Seir and Edom are east of the Dead Sea. Do you see the Dead Sea? Big, long stretch. That's the Salt Sea, massive salt content. Those two places are east of the Dead Sea. And we learn in the next verse that she is recounting in her mind the events that took place on Mount Sinai. You say, Gordon, what does Seir and Edom and Mount Sinai have to do with what happened on Mount Tabor? Well, let me explain. Um, and she goes on to explain. We'll see if I've got that in there or not. Yeah, I'm going to explain it to you. Anyhow, so what Deborah is remembering is the time that the Israelites had come out of Egypt They'd come out of slavery. They'd crossed through the northern tip of the Red Sea. God had decimated the armies of the Egyptians. And they had then made their way down south into the peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula, to, the, to Mount Sinai. And while they were waiting there at Mount Sinai, they look off in the distance, and here comes an ominous cloud from the north. A cloud from, as she's saying here, Seir and Edom, from that territory. And God comes, and he rests on top of Mount Sinai, and there's thunder, and the mountain is shaking, and there's lightning, and there's rain pouring down. And she says all this. Look at uh, verse, uh, verse 4. Um, well, verse 5. Yeah, yeah, verse 4 says, middle of verse 4, the earth shook at Sinai. The heavens poured down rain, verse 5. The mountains themselves quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai. She is drawing a parallel in the minds of the Israelites who maybe weren't there for the battle to see the power of God. She's drawing a parallel in their mind between the events of Mount Sinai when God came and the cloud rested on top of Mount Sinai and the events of Mount Tabor. When God came and the cloud rested on Mount Tabor and the lightning struck and the thunder and the mountain shook. Well, you can imagine what kind of a reaction this caused with the troops down at the bottom of the mountain. She says this, verse 20, uh, <clears throat> Judges chapter 5, verse 20. From the heavens, the stars fought. Now, all throughout the... Uh, Old Testament. Many times the stars are referencing angels. And so the imagery here is that the angels themselves were involved in the battle and lightning is striking the, behind the chariots and the horses are running and troops are scattering and it's just total bedlam and chaos. 
And so she says to Barak up on the mountain with all of this going on, can't you see that the Lord has gone ahead of you? You thought you were toast. You thought we had no chance. You thought God had painted us into a corner. But when God himself got involved in our battle, even the odds, it tipped the scales. Verse 21, look at what happened as a result of the heavens pouring out rain. Verse 21, remember our little picture of the Kishon River? Little Kishon River, little swampy, you know, little, little cut through the middle of the headwaters. It says the Kishon River swept away the armies of the Canaanites. Last verse, verse 22, then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping, go Jabin and Sisera's mighty steeds. Why'd Sisera get off that chariot? Why'd he abandon his chariot? His horses were stampeding. His feet were in the air. They were pawing. They were running everywhere this way and that. Nobody could control them anymore. Maybe the iron wheels were stuck in the mud from this massive deluge. I mean, the Kishon River swelled so much, so quickly, so much rain dumped down there at the bottom of this mountain that it literally swept 10,000 men and 900 chariots all away. And then finally, Barak's like, well, I guess maybe we can get involved, right? (laughs) Okay. So with all that happening, the Kishon River sweeping away, the stampeding horses, Sisera on the run, Deborah says, go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Friends, God has gone ahead of Barak and the Israelite army. If we are looking for the power of God in this story, by golly, I think we've found it, right? So they charge down the mountain. Let me wrap this thing up. They charge down the mountain. Sisera tries to make an escape. He has a buddy who lives nearby. He's mentioned in verse 13. You won't have to go over there, but he's mentioned in verse 13. He is an Israelite trader. He is a Jew who lives amongst the Israelites, but he's seen that, hey, look, these folks are suffering. My neighbors are suffering. The folks in my town are suffering, and they're suffering at the hands of this foreign power. Well, I'll just make friends with the foreign power. I'll turn traitor so that I can have a more comfortable life, and so that's what he does. But the interesting thing, so Sisera goes to the tent, goes to the home of this guy. But the interesting thing is, this guy's married to Jael. And Jael is still loyal, quietly loyal, to the Israelites. Sisera comes into her tent. He's exhausted from the battle. She throws a blanket over him, gives him some warm milk. Like, literally, she gives him some warm milk. And he lays down, and he falls asleep. She goes and gets a tent peg, drives it through the temple of his, of his head, and pegs him to the ground, and that's the end of the story. I know. I decided I would just kind of paraphrase that part. But in any case, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. There's more gore if you want to get into it. But anyway, um, with all of that, that's, that's the end of our story. So that means it's time for us to ask that most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, it's besides, you know, the great graphic Lord of the Rings, you know, kind of descending down on the enemy kind of a thing, and don't go to Jael's house to stay for the night. I mean, what difference does any of this make to me well let's talk about that i want to point you point you toward one final verse in chapter four chapter four and verse 23 chapter four and verse 23 it says on that day god subdued jabin the canaanite king before the israelites and he did all this right in front of their very eyes god subdued 
not Barak got a bunch of bravery all of a sudden. It's that God went and did this and then allowed the Israelites to have that victory. All of this affirms that God is all-powerful. All of this affirms that God is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. All of this affirms that there is no problem, friends, that you or I may face in our life that God cannot handle. That's what it means for God to be all-powerful. He's bigger than your problems. That's who he is. It's part of his essential nature. It's part of his character. It defines him. It means that you and I will never come across a problem that God is incapable of. Of dealing with. It means that there's nothing in the words of the angel Gabriel that is impossible with God. There is no situation that God cannot deal with. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Friends, these stories in the Bible, memorialized in the song of Deborah, remind us and remind the people of God that the same all-powerful God who led Barak and Deborah and the 10,000 men of Israel down that mountain and helped them, caused them to conquer, turn the tables, conquer their insurmountable odds, their enemies. That that same God is the God that we serve today. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. To say if God can do that, friends, for Barak, then buddy, he can do that for me. And it's when we get to the place that we really believe this, friends, not just in our head. Because, well, this is what they said in the Bible. You know, nothing's impossible with God, okay. But it's when we believe it in our heart. It's when we believe it in our soul such that we are willing, friends, don't miss this, to go up on top of the mountain, to go to the place where God says, this is going to paint you into a corner. To go to the place where it seems like there's no way out. But we trust him to say, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. You're putting me in a situation, God, where I'm just going to have to trust in your power. Believing in our heart, believing down deep in our soul that God is who he says he is, that he is almighty. As followers of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you this question. What are you believing God for that no one else can do? Friends, when he does it, he'll do it in such a way that man can't take the credit for. Something that we're trusting God for, it looks like the odds are way stacked against us. God says, hey, look, this is my will. It might be something with your school might be something with your work. might be something with your children. might be something with your grandchildren. It doesn't matter what it is. Friends, if you don't have something on that list, then you are robbing God of the opportunity to show out who he is and to reveal his glory in your own life. Now, I think sometimes we trust God. Okay, all right, that's the big stuff, too. Trust God for the big stuff. But God wants us to trust him for the small stuff, too. Um, yesterday, I, I have had a horrendous week. I'll just go ahead and let you know. Horrendous week. 
Uh, I've been busy beyond what I have ever been in years. Um, I have, I have partic- been participating in a continuing education course uh, through Point University, and it has slammed my schedule. I mean, working until 11 o'clock at night, working until 1.30 in the morning, just trying to get all this, this stuff in, and they've crammed what should be done in about eight or nine weeks into three weeks. Anyhow, I've been working my tail off all week, stressed out about all this stuff, and last night about, what was it, about 10.30, 10 o'clock, I'm, I'm, I'd already done an assignment, and it's a combined assignment where several students get to come in, these are other professors, get to come in, and they all share a document together, and they're inputting their information into it. And, uh, and I, had, I was the first one to do this. One of the other professors, I didn't put my name at the end of it, because it was a shared document, I just put my stuff in there, and he slaps his name on the end of my work. Well, okay, it came on, right? And so, but I'm like, okay, Lord, I can't do that. So I'm like, how am I going to get credit for this? I'm going to end up getting a zero on this assignment because this guy just stuck his name. He literally put at the bottom of it, thanks, continue blessings, and put his name. I'm like, what in the world? I can't believe he did that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like wanting to email him. I'm going to find his phone number. I'm heading to his house. Anyway, I'm like, why would you do this? And so I'm like, okay, well, the right thing to do is I need to contact the person who's over the course. And so I sent her an email, and I just nicely said, hey, look, this is what's happened. Uh, and I have no way of proving that this was my work. It's got his name on it now. And so I'm like, I'm going to have to redo this whole thing and submit something else. And anyway, it's already been a long week, and it's late at night. And, uh, and so I went to bed last night, and I'm laying there in my bed. And I'm tossing this way, and I'm tossing that way. And finally, the Lord goes, who am I again? Oh. Okay, that's who you are. Okay, God, I'm going to trust that I'm not going to have to solve this situation, but I'm going to place it into your hands. So I got up this morning at a ridiculously early time, and in my inbox... My, was an email reply from the lady from like this morning. She apparently gets up early too. I don't understand that. But anyway, so probably because she's part of this continuing education class. But an email from her, she says, oh, okay, I see what you're talking about and I see where he's done that. I just want you to know that I have a way to go into this document and see who made edits and who placed what where. Oh, <laughs> Okay, well, that's great. Friends, God wants us to trust in him for, yeah, the big mountaintop painted into corner stuff, but also the daily bread kind of stuff. So let's conclude. Knowing that I have an all-powerful God, it gives me quiet confidence with which I can face every obstacle with peace and without fear and that I should, and it should give you, friends, that same confidence. Did you know that over 60 times in the Bible, God says, or uses the phrase, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? Because Jeremiah 32 and verse 27. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind, is anything, too hard for me. Fear not. Friends, when I'm in despair, and sometimes I despair, 
when I'm feeling anxious and sometimes I'm feeling anxious. When those moments come, I just need to be reminded of Jeremiah 32, verse 27, of who my God is. If you're in despair this morning, if you're discouraged this morning, remember that you serve the Lord, the God of all mankind. Let's pray together. Lord, your truth changes things. Knowing who you are, Lord, it changes things. It brings peace where there's worry. It brings confidence where there is fear. Lord, this morning, may we have a fresh glimpse of our almighty In these quiet moments of communion, Lord, maybe there's some stuff in our life that's got us discouraged. Maybe there's some stuff in our life that's got us feeling anxious or in despair. And Lord, perhaps we've got good reason to feel that way. And yet, Lord, you say, hey, look, be reminded of who is on your side. The Lord of all mankind. The Almighty. Lord, we commit these things to your care. And in these quiet moments this morning, Lord, allow your quiet comfort and your peace to reign in our hearts and our minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.